0: All right, guys, time for a new format this week. I'm going to do something very different from previous episodes. I think there's only been one, is just one episode where I was by myself, but I'll let you in on a little secret. When I don't have a guest, it's hard. <laughs> it's it's honestly a lot harder to just keep speaking to yourself and not to somebody else. I'm going to let you know ahead of time that uh, this may or may not work. We'll find out as it goes, but I am going to be trying to record it in a way that I, um I don't need to edit it too much, so you might find slightly more pauses and stuff in between while I gather my thoughts. but uh we'll see how it goes. Let me know if this episode still works for you i have I just have a lot of stuff to say, and i I, I couldn't really think of a guest that I'd want to make the victim of me just talking for a long time and kind of getting myself out you know my own thoughts out for the whole. Episode, but uh, there are other shows I listen to and enjoy with a single person. So hopefully, you do too. To start off, I'll give you, I'll give you a rundown of what we're going to talk about today. It's uh, first why the podcast has not come out for so long—longest gap, longest gap in this podcast history. Um, uh, I'm sorry about that, but there was no way around, or no way around it. And uh, in a moment, you'll find out why. Then I want to quickly touch on the new and upcoming Apple announcements because it's uh, it's that time of year again. Uh, Then I've got some questions from you guys, uh, some recorded questions, so I won't be the only voice here. I won't be completely alone. I'll have a few listeners join me, and then I'm going to close it out talking a little bit about Game of Thrones. I, I try not to be too topical here. But, uh, you know, this, was a, this is a pretty big show that ran for a very long time, and uh, I've been watching it the whole time. I have some thoughts now that it's over. If you don't want spoilers, that's fine. It'll be at the end of the show, so you can just drop out and stop listening. But uh, I, I will talk about some thoughts at the very end of uh, all this. Back to the start. Why has an episode not come out in uh, however many weeks it's been? Uh, We've been traveling, and that's never been excused before. We always are on the road quite a bit. But this was a lot more extensive than usual and um, just more uh, work-intensive than usual. The things we were working on really consumed all of our hours in the day, and uh, just having the time to sit down and and focus was, was not really possible. But uh, what we're working on is very exciting. And I'll both let you know what, what it is so you're ready for it when it comes out and how I'm doing it. Um, I think that some of the behind the scenes on it will be interesting because it's been a very challenging project. And what it is, is a, a course. It is going to be a photography course teaching you about travel photography and how we do it. And then we are creating a second course about shooting people, portraits, selfies. Um, all of this is kind of aimed at uh, relatively casual shooters. I think, I, I like to think that I've got some professionals out there listening, um, but I know that not everybody is doing this for work. Uh, some people don't have big cameras, but still want to take great photos. That's kind of who this is for. its uh, We're not really going through technical basics, like, like, I don't know, the relationship of shutter speed ISO and aperture. It's more tricks that you can apply immediately without having advanced knowledge. So I th- think there will be a bunch of information here for people that that do already do more advanced stuff, but we'll be talking about it in a context that you can still be shooting with your phone. So uh, the, the goal is to strike this balance between being really accessible to everybody and also have some practical, useful information. The way this ended up happening is that a, a, a company that we're collaborating with on this came to us and wanted to create a course. I'm, I'll Tell you all about who it is a little later on because I know they're not ready to you know announce their end of the project yet. But it's uh it's gonna take a lot of editing. It's gonna take a long time to do. So it won't be out for a while. Even though we've shot uh, a lot of the travel stuff already. It's uh yeah it's it's gonna be huge. But um, having shot so much lately, I figured it also. I I've I've got some thoughts about the actual production process and stuff I've been learning, stuff I've been using. And for starters, the camera. Uh, For this shoot, we were using the Sony a7 III to shoot video. I do have a uh, Canon C200 now, very excited to say. I don't know know if I've talked about it on the podcast as much as, I mean, obviously YouTube, I've done some videos about it, but I haven't filled you guys in that much about it. So here's a chance... Uh, to tell you why I choose one or the other and some of the differences, in this case, it was all because of size and weight. I was also traveling with the 5D Mark IV. That's what we were shooting stills on. So when I've already got two camera bodies, I mean, that the C200 really takes up a lot of room. It's, it's pretty big. Um, I did travel with it for another YouTube video just before this, which is also part of the reason there hasn't been a podcast. We actually went on uh, mo- more trips than I was even thinking. So we went to Arizona first. And we were there for the better part of a week. Uh, and that was just for an unrelated project. Uh, and then the travel stuff was in... And there'll be a YouTube video from that, by the way. And then we went to Israel and Jordan and then Palm Springs and back. Uh, so shooting the C200 travel stuff worked out half decent. Um, the biggest problem is that it takes up so much space in my bag that I really have to cut some other items. And... Uh, for the bigger video project, I knew that I was going to have to have more extensive mic solutions, m- micing options. We uh, brought the Deity Connect lav kit uh, to to do some of the kind of walking and talking stuff so that I didn't always have to be close to the camera. Uh, it, it worked fantastically. Uh, my, my quick review after having used it a bit, I ran into no real issues with it at any point. The only one is that the... Um, on my first day of wearing the transmitter kit, the antenna came unscrewed and is now, is now lost. <laughs> so I'm going to have to get a new antenna. Not uh, not the end of the world. I mean, it's uh, of all the pieces to lose, it's a pretty cheap one. I don't know if that was my fault, but it was a little annoying. Uh, otherwise, yeah, the, the the DD Connect is awesome. They sent it to me. So, you know, disclaimer is always that uh, this wasn't a piece of gear I paid for, but I before that, I have the Sennheiser G3, which uh, isn't current. The G4 has been out for a while, but you know it's kind of one of the most commonly used um, options out there for wireless transmitters and receivers. And I got to tell you, I'm never going to go back to it. <laughs> if I don't have to, I'm always going to choose the deity over it because of things like USB-C charging. So if the batteries die, I can just plug in at any time. I um, I, I don't need to carry around a bunch of extra double A's, which I always had to do on the Sennheiser and because I would, you'd go through them. You couldn't last the day with double A's. Now with the deity, uh, the lithium ion batteries inside of the transmitters and transmitter and receivers, it comes with one transmitter, two receivers are supposed to last for 10 hours. And I didn't have them come close to dying. I would just wear them out for the day, leave them on. And the battery never got down to half. Very good opinions of them so far. And then it's the same price for those uh, one transmitter, two receivers. No, wait, I'm saying backwards. Two transmitters, one receiver. Same price as one Sennheiser kit, um, you know, which only has one mic and all that. So, yeah, I so far can can strongly recommend these new deities Uh In the end, I actually ended up using it a little less than the shotgun mic. And I was using the Rode VideoMic Pro Plus for, for this audio. I have been choosing it over the Deity, get the name right, VMic D3 Pro, which is the direct competitor. I've I've talked about it in stories a bit. I don't think I did any videos about it, but it, it, or no, wait, I did. Uh, The the VMic is great, kind of for the price. Like, I, I think a lot of people should choose it if. They don't need the the best, but I do think that still the Rode VideoMic Pro Plus is the best. And the fact that I have both will uh, lead me to choosing the Rode most of the time. Biggest reasons are the uh, first. This one doesn't seem like a big deal. I know, I know a feature that Deity wanted to add is the ability to slide it backwards and forwards. So there's a little screw lock so that you can adjust the forward and backward motion of the mic. That is a feature. I mean, it's supposed to make it better. Uh, you would uh, be able to balance a gimbal by moving the mic around by doing that. Um, and also, it can open up the space to the viewfinder if you want to put your eye up to it. Those sound great. In the end, um, I just haven't run into those issues very often with the road. They haven't been significant issues. And the trade off is that on the Deity, it's always sliding back and forth. Like I tighten it, it still loosens itself and starts. Flopping around, and I'm just retightening it all day long. So, what I'd love to see the deity do is put um, lock a real locking mechanism on it, something that just stays in place. Maybe, maybe just two options. It's either all the way forward or backwards. I don't know, something like that. And then the other thing is that the uh, wind screen on the deity—I've uh, had it completely come off twice without noticing, just by having it mounted on top of my camera and carrying the camera like by my side. I'm just not looking at the camera, you know, kind of vloggy situations. Slips off. I don't have any windscreen anymore, and I, I really don't want to lose it. I don't want to have to replace it, and that does not happen with the road. The, the road, it's with the road. It seems like it's one piece. Like I, I think you can take it off, but you, you don't. It's re- it's really locked on there. And then uh, the final thing is, there's a little more bass in the road. I just prefer the sound of it a little bit. Not not that much, but it a bit. So anyway, if you are price sensitive, get the deity. If you've never had the road, you won't know what you well I guess I just told you what you're missing. Uh you may not realize what you're missing. You may you you might be completely happy with it and it is something like 30% cheaper. If you want the absolute best, I, I think that the Rode VideoMic Pro Plus is still at the top. And uh okay, back to cameras because that's what I was supposed to be talking about. Uh the first trip used the C200 and I actually kind of screwed up shooting with it. My first experience was a bit of a, a mistake. I Knew that when you're shooting raw, it has the most dynamic range at ISO 800. I've always had a very hard time under like wrapping my head around the idea of cameras being rated at an ISO. And if you guys are just photographers, this probably doesn't make any sense to you. I mean, that which is I'm sure why it was so hard for me to figure out is coming from a photo background. You just set your ISO to the number that feels right for the exposure, and that's what you use. And uh, the only trade-off is noise um, th- there can be a little bit of dynamic range shift um, but it's it's pretty minimal and mostly it's that it degrades as you go to the very top end but other than that you just you don't have to worry about it um, I really saw what it meant when I was using the the c200 in raw and what that ended up doing I, I really got to, you'll see some of the shots when the video comes out where there are blown out parts of the image that Definitely didn't have to be. Uh, I know I could have retained that detail. And it's because I was shooting at ISO 100. Uh, we're in full daylight. And I was just like, yeah, okay, there might be a small difference at ISO uh, 800. Maybe technically there's more dynamic range, but how much am I even going to notice? It can't be a big deal. The reason is that any overexposure is clipped at 100. Like you're, you're you kind of just can't bring it down anymore. What you see is what you get. So if anything is slightly overexposed, you're not bringing it back. Whereas at ISO 800, you're you're basically rating it for 800, and then when you edit the video afterwards, you're sort of bringing the ISO back down, right? So uh, the the way that you that I've heard people recommending, and I'm starting to do, uh, is to shoot slightly over overexposed. I'm doing little quotes here, so that basically, so your shadows don't get too muddy or noisy. Um, but you're not clipping. Just always just be watching your highlights. Don't clip anything if you can avoid it. And then you're, you can always bring it down in post very safely, and that will also reduce the noise a bit. It's effectively just turning the ISO down in post, but you're also able to hold on to those highlights. And now that I'm explaining to you, I realize that I probably still don't really understand why these ratings affect the uh, dynamic range as much as they do, but they really do. So that was a lesson hard learned after getting some kind of unfortunately bad looking footage out of my new very expensive camera. And then um, other than that, it was great. I mean, I really like holding it. I like working with the camera. I've uh, slightly shifted the rig since I did that video. I put uh, some tennis, uh, what do you call it? Like the tape that you wrap around a tennis racket on the handle to stop it from slipping, which in the video I said that it kept slipping out of my hand. Now it's Holding on, just great. All that stuff from Small Rig, uh, which you know I like their stuff. It's not as high of quality as everything else. I, you know, as competitors like Zacuto and whoever else I'm not thinking of um, wooden cameras. But it is, it is very good. It's good enough. It work, it works just fine. And um, what else? What else did I change? Uh, I, since that trip, so afterwards, I was using a movable arm for the monitor, like a uh, Zacuto. Twisty arm, kind of like a magic arm. And that works really well in a more rigged out situation where I have a lot of stuff on the camera and I need to like position it all. But when I'm being really mobile, I actually preferred having the monitor mounted directly on the camera. So I ordered from Small HD a little NATO clamp monitor screw so that the almost like a mirrorless camera, the monitor just becomes part of the camera. And another advantage of that is then it is also level with the camera. Because this is something that's been driving me crazy with C200 is I find myself not holding the camera level enough. Part of it is that, well, this is a big part, is the monitor isn't attached to it, so the horizon lines or the vertical lines may not be the same when you look at the screen as what you can physically feel in your hand because they're twist did slightly like they're not angled the same way and there's no digital level on the camera which is crazy to me i i have no idea why that's the case uh if somebody listening can recommend a great little screw on level to put on a big camera i would appreciate it because i think i'm going to need that i need some way to verify when i'm looking straight up and down because i've I've got more crooked shots than i'd like since i've been using the c200 um, and yeah, anyway, d- mounting the monitor directly on that has helped. It also makes everything a little more compact. It means that I can't put a top handle on when I'm using it that way, but that's okay. Now, uh, I-, I didn't bring that to Israel and Jordan because that was very far. And there are often issues with travel on luggage when you uh, travel in Europe. So a, com- a thing we've run into a number of times is that when we're flying over to Europe, everything's fine. I've got my big heavy camera bag, which is is definitely overweight, but uh, nobody notices. And then in my rolling luggage, I've also got a little bit more gears. Like that's where I'll stick the tripod. Uh, and it's also very heavy. And, you know, both of them are too heavy to go on the uh, – to, to fit the weight restrictions of carry-on in Europe. But in North America, they don't weigh it. There's no – nobody ever asks. It's never a problem. It's totally fine. And then, yeah, all of a sudden, one – annoying clerk at an airport is like, oh, can you stick that on the scale? And then what? I, I mean, then my carry on is over and this is camera gear. And where am I going to move it? Like what, where do I take the C200 and put it in my checked baggage all of a sudden that isn't ready for, I mean, yeah, nightmare scenario uh, that I didn't want to run into. So we traveled with the Sony A III, which that video still looks great. I don't feel like there's a significant image quality compromise in most cases, especially for web use. And I was shooting it in a new way that I found really exciting once I discovered it and really got comfortable with it. Uh, I, I picked this up from a Gerald Undone video that I'll stick in the show notes, uh, where i have been using Cine4 as my standard color profile for a while now, because it's pretty flat, but it's really easy to grade back to normal without any loss of image quality. And um, the base ISO is like 200. So I don't have to put as many NDs on. I'm not stuck at 800 like it would be an S-log. And then uh, I I would shoot S-log when I want a more dynamic range, which I always want more dynamic range. But S-log has so many compromises that I didn't feel like I could really trust it. And, uh, you know, I had used Deslog on a client video recently where it had a ton of banding that is what finally drove me to the C200, is to have something that could have all that dynamic range and still look great. And you know what? That C200 color and tonal quality and uh, gradient quality is so good. Like, it really, it's been a relief to not have to fix colors in the same way that I need to kind of fix them out of the Sony. Uh, but anyway, uh, what what I was using instead is uh, based on this Gerald Undone video where he shows the difference between all of them and lands on Cine 2 and HLG. Uh, Cine 2 being an alternative to Cine 4, but I'm not going to use it. I'm now going to use pretty much nothing else other than uh, HLG, and I'm also shooting it in the... ET2020 color profile in case anybody's wondering. The advantages are that it has all the dynamic range of S-Log. I don't know if it's the same or more or less, but it feels quite similar. But it's like shooting in the other flat profiles. So, uh, it doesn't look super low-con, like it's it's lower contrast but not extreme, it doesn't look like log. And uh it yeah, I mean, I'm just I'm blown away. It doesn't have all the, like, the noise issues and softness issues that S-Log does, like, S-Log really degrades the image quality. It looks worse in a number of ways to gain that extra dynamic range. So you really have to feel like it's worth it. And uh, again, grading from log is challenging. It's easy to make your image look terrible. So shooting in HLG was, it's so much more straightforward the trick you got to know, and uh, don't rely on my description to, to do this. If you're going to use HLG, make sure that you watch some tutorials about it. When you bring it back into Final Cut or Premiere, or whatever you're using, I, I'm doing it in Final Cut. You have to tell the editing program to recognize that uh, Rec 2020, right? Because so HLG is... Is a like a REC 2020 standard? I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm talking about, so don't listen to me. But it's a REC 2020 standard, so it has a, a, a. It is using a wider dynamic range than REC 709 can use, and you need to go into the settings of that clip and say this is a REC 709, or read this as a REC 709 clip, and then it'll display correctly. Because before that, it'll look crazy. It'll look way overexposed, and you'll panic and think that you broke your image. You didn't. You just need to figure out the settings. Um, so that one step uh, then brings it into looking like a totally normal image, which I love working with. That's been awesome. And uh, and you can also bring the ISO down. You, uh, I think you can shoot at 125. It, to me, like, S-Log is dead. Even if I was shooting on a, you know, FS7. Uh, so FS7s don't have HLG. But when that is replaced, I don't see why they wouldn't even move. Like, st- just start moving away from S-Log. Like, S-Log is... A pain to grade with. It looks terrible as you're shooting it. and You got to better understand your your like LUT workflow, and you need to have more of a grasp on color. It seems to me that this would be a great thing to roll out to all of the Sony line as um, a more commonly used standard, even if you're shooting in regular REC seven hundred nine, not HDR. And uh, yeah, so uh, more or less, the Sony was great. It performed well, like it always does. Intel. Uh, towards the end of the trip, and I, I still haven't edited the footage, so I don't know when this happened. At some moment, towards the end of this very huge video shoot, this very important big video shoot that we are working on all week, and we will continue to be working on that. I mean, it all, all these clips really matter. I noticed that the microphone port was broken, Uh, And actually, I mean, it's uh, the reason I don't know when it happened is because Anya is actually the one that noticed. She was recording me for a second, was like, "Wait, your audio levels are looking off." Uh, You know, that basically there was some level response coming from the internal mics, but it wasn't loud enough, and that's what made us realize that it wasn't coming through the real mic anymore because the headphone jack broke. This this is this is a (laughs) a nightmare. I mean, I have seen this before uh on a a7r3 i had the exact same thing happen this is when we are traveling to sweden so if you've seen that stockholm video it happened during that video and that that was a rental so i mean i didn't have to deal with it in the end but it really sucks a lot especially when it's york now that it's my camera like it really really sucks and uh you know i tweet about it and everybody is like oh you too yeah join the club like this is happening to everybody and i i'd heard a bit of rumbling about it before but now like really seeing how widespread this is this is such a huge problem for sony like you need the mic to be reliable not have it break on 50 to 80 percent of people's cameras i mean it's a massive problem. And I was actually out of warranty by two weeks. And now I'm waiting to find out if it will be Uh, snuck in under the radar to just barely be covered. Because of course it should be like, this is a faulty issue that all the Sonys are having. I don't care that the A7 III is a slightly less expensive camera. It can't be falling down on critical features like having audio input. So... That was uh that was a big letdown. We um we still got everything done that we needed to, but it was very frustrating having that happen at the end. So now my Sony is gone. I I don't have it to shoot with right now. I'm going to be just shooting with Cannons. Uh the 5D Mark IV did great as it always does uh, shooting stills. Not that I've had to send it in for service before as well, but um it didn't fail in the same way it failed and it basically I went over the shutter limit and the shutter broke, which that's that's how it works. Uh, you use a shutter too many times and your camera stops working. And I have done that uh, once with this Canon. So uh, and I probably will do it again soon because uh, we overshoot. So anyway, that's that's how we did it. Uh, there will be so much more to talk about when this actual video comes out. It will be long. There'll be a lot to watch. I'm slightly terrified of uh, doing it all because it's just by far the biggest project we worked on. But I'm going to be really happy to to have it finished when it is. Now let's talk about Apple for a minute. I um I I've always kind of wished I could just have an Apple show where I just do news on Apple like when whenever it happens and because uh, that's a lot of I listen to like three or four Apple podcasts to me or in my world like Apple is most of the technology that I. Uh, use as far as computers and phones go. So it's not that I am dismissive of other brands or think that they are bad in any way. I mean, there's things that I'm often jealous of, like the, the Huawei camera looks amazing and being able to use an NVIDIA graphics card would be really exciting. And, you know, there's apps on Windows. And there's... (laughs) Actually, it's funny calling them apps when it's Windows. There's there's Windows programs that I wanted to use over in the past. And, you know, like, there's little things that I've wanted from other platforms. But in the end, Apple creates the things that I do use day-to-day. So, yeah, I follow their news closely. And there is some. uh, I don't need to defend myself. So just as of recording today, there was new laptops announced, um, new MacBook Pros, and this is, I guess, a bit of follow-up from mine. So I'm sitting in front of my 2018 MacBook Pro. I've got the 15-inch with the, I mean, you probably saw this in the YouTube video, but okay, let's look at it again. This is the 15-inch with 2.6 gigahertz Intel Core i7 with 32 gigabytes RAM, and I got the two-terabyte uh, hard drive. That was the best upgrade that I did because I actually uh, downgraded the processor. I, had, I told everybody, I told you guys I was going to get the i9. I changed, I canceled my order and ordered this i7 with the bigger hard drive. And I'm so glad that I did. Not because I don't think the bigger processor is worth it, but because the hard drive is so worth it. Like uh, being able to have, m- m- generally, I can just keep my current video projects stored locally, which is a huge advantage. And uh, and yeah, finally, I also upgraded the graphics card in this thing, so I've got uh, you know almost as good as I can get without the top of the line processor. But now, what was announced today is that top of the line processor could be eight cores, which is which is really awesome. I mean, I. I'm not going to order one. Uh, I don't just randomly order ca- computers all the time, and uh, especially not to review because I don't understand how anybody makes those economics work on YouTube. I, I am very excited about this, uh, what it means for professional computers, though, uh, for Macs, the Apple commitment to the pro market. The concern for quite a few years was how much they were backing away from it. They were letting their graphics cards get slow. They were not pushing the processors to be the best in the industry or competitive with similarly priced PC options. And that is really frustrating to me because, or was... Now, because I feel like it's turning around, but it, it was really hard because I would look at, uh, you know, think about like, okay, what do I need now that I'm moving to 4K and maybe I'm gonna sh- now that I'm shooting raw video? Like, I want to know that I can keep committing to Apple as a platform, and I don't need to look around and be jealous of what other people are doing on Windows. And seeing this kind of quick advancement really does make me happy. Uh, I, uh, a lot of people right after I released my review of this computer. Uh, wrote in to ask if I was jealous of the updated graphics card that came, um, you know, four months later, like pretty shortly after my computer came out, they uh, boosted the GPU options. And you know what? That's exactly, exactly what they should be doing, is updating the GPU and the CPU as often as possible. And uh, whether or not there's a new laptop design ready, I want to see a spec bump every chance they have. Um, That's what it means to be in the pro market. That's especially on the GPU end, like it's just a requirement that I can, I'm not making big sacrifices by going with Apple. And, you know, fortunately, Final Cut is so well optimized that it, it makes up for some of those hardware compromises that uh, because you don't have access to the best of the best, which you do on Windows. But at some point, you know, I'd love to see what a super, super fast Mac would look like also running Final Cut and any day now i mean it's we're right around the corner sort of i don't know how soon not it's not going to be this wdc i don't think wwdc i think but um we will be seeing a arm processor future at some point which uh is going to be the, the you know one of the biggest jumps that the mac has made in a long time in terms of how it works and if you don't already know what's coming uh, this wwdc the big the biggest thing and i don't know exactly how it's going to roll out but is having a uh, uh, iOS apps available on the desktop, on macOS. And the codename is Marzipan. We don't know what it's going to be called for real, but I've gotten very used to just calling it Marzipan, so it's going to be weird when it's anything else. But it's that will be a massive change because for a while now I've been noticing how many really powerful apps there are on my phone that I can't match on the desktop. Like an example is uh, AI facial uh, retouching. So, and okay, I know this kind of sounds like a joke, but like things like FaceTune or I think this one called FaceApp, like there's a a bunch that just do a bunch of smart adjustments and like, they look at a face and they're like, oh, that's where the eyes are. That's where the lips are. I'm going to just clean it up. And that can go too far. Uh, You know, if you just look at some of the default options, they look ridiculous. Like they look like uh, turning a face into emoji. But when you turn it down, there is some really powerful AI stuff happening there. None of that's available for pro apps on a desktop. Like Photoshop's not going there. They're not even thinking about that. I mean, there's some facial detection stuff in the Liquify tool. But when I'm retouching, I need to do it all by myself. There is no AI to help me. And I know that it could. I know it could be doing more. And the iOS market is so much bigger than the uh, Mac market that it's 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 opened up just thousands of apps that, like, try all these different ideas and experiment with them. Some go too far, some don't go far enough, whatever. Like, they, but they're out there. And what this means is that any developer is going to have a lot more incentive to make cross-platform apps. And so what I want to see is some of these apps like Visco. I mean, I bet this is why Visco discontinued their Lightroom product is because they're working on a Marzipan app that will be a desktop equivalent, which... I actually think it'll be a pretty great experience. I think their image processing engine has been better than Lightroom in a lot of cases. Yeah, I I think there's a lot of huge leaps that are going to come as we see more iOS apps arriving on the desktop. So keep an eye on WWDC. We also have a Mac Pro coming, I hope. Um, I'm definitely going to be talking about it in some number of ways. I'm excited. And another small update that I just, I never got around to, but I did get uh, AirPod AirPods two, the new the new AirPods that are uh, actually just called AirPods still, but are updated. And uh, my experience with them so far has, um, I'd say, been very similar. I have heard most of the reviewers talking about like, yeah, like improvements, improvements. The only big improvement I noticed was audio quality. Apple representative said that the audio is exactly the same; it should be unchanged. As soon as I put mine in, I could hear a significant difference from my previous iPods, um, the Air- AirPods, why'd I say iPods? Um, the, the biggest thing being, um, or I wonder if the reason was because of just degradation, of the old ones that, you know, maybe they were just f- slightly falling apart, you know, like a little bit of buildup in the hearing canals. I have tried to clean them a lot and that doesn't seem to be the issue. So I don't know, but it was a, a big jump. They do sound better. The wireless charging, I just started using this week because I got a bedside table thing from Studio Neat, the, I don't remember what it's called, the, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes, the material design charging thing. So it's got a wireless a Qi charger and a spot for your Apple Watch to charge and another plug, which I'm using for my phone so I can charge all three in the same place at the same time. It looks pretty cool. And that's the first time I started using the Qi charging. I was not using it on the AirPods 2 until I ordered that. So I think to make it part of your life, you have to make a conscious decision to buy the right things to make that useful. Otherwise, um, you know, (laughs) it's not. If you don't have Qi chargers laying around all over the place, then uh, you don't end up using it very often. Uh, But yeah, otherwise, connectivity uh, differences they i didn't do the little speed test of seeing which will connect faster but i did find that they they will still cut out a sort of a similar amount where they'll just kind of be interference issues or, or something still my favorite product like buy them 100 percent buy them um, if your previous airpods are working fine like no you're not having any issues at all don't worry about it. You, you're you not missing anything. <laughs> Still, the best headphones I've ever had and one of my favorite tech products. I just, of course, have to nitpick it because I use it a lot. And uh, I, th- that's all I got for Apple now. Um, that's it. But what I do have is the new segment. This is the part where you guys send in audio files with questions and I answer them. So uh, let's, let's see how this works. I'm, I'm trying out a Farago for the first time, uh, which is... Cool soundboard piece of software. So let's hear from Adam. Hey Tyler, this is Adam from Ithaca, New York. Uh I wanted to know your thoughts about computational photography. Ooh, I like this. And I can play and pause it, and I can like just respond to Adam like he's here. In like traditional cameras. Smartphones have like taken a huge step up with uh, using this sort of technology. They sure have. And I wonder if and when you think Other manufacturers like traditional manufacturers are going to start using this so that we can see the same sort of benefits at a grander scale in our sort of dedicated photo and video cameras. Thanks. Love your show. Awesome. Thanks, Adam, for sending that in. I have got that question a a bunch in a bunch of different places, so I should probably answer it here. Uh, This is, I I think, not coming soon. (laughs) I don't think this is on the radar for big camera companies, even though it should be. I don't know what it would take to make this happen. I mean, we can all imagine how great this would be. It's not hard to picture, you know, what if you could do night sight uh using Google's technology but have a giant Sony sensor. It it would look amazing. It would be it would be complete magic. But the processors on these bigger cameras are not nearly as powerful as what's going into smartphones. I don't really know why. I'm not I'm not a, scientistian I don't build cameras for a living so I can't tell you why they can't make something just as powerful but they're not um and uh yeah I so what what am I qualified to comment on here I can tell you that it would be better it, it's obviously something for us to be excited about I think that there is not a lot of there's not a lot of incentive for collaboration like I don't see Sony or or sorry, I don't see Apple or Google reaching out to Canon or Sony to propose a collaboration because the scale of the phones is just so much bigger. Like there's so many more sales opportunities and the traditional, the, the camera market, the like real camera market is in decline. Uh, Canon shrunk, but their sales went down by 20% last year and uh, Sony's was able to grow a bit, but it grew less than Canon shrunk, I think something like 2%. So I don't know what it's going to take for these two worlds to collide and start collaborating and working together, but I haven't seen any signs of it. And I'll be a little surprised when I do hear the announcement for the first time. It would be really cool to see this maybe happening like on the desktop, if there was a way that the apps being written for Marzipan could do some of the magic happening on the phone when you import your raw photos. But I'm also not going to keep my hopes up too much for this because I think a lot of the magic comes from the really close integration between hardware and software. So I I don't think you could just take generic raw photos and do the same things to them. I think you really need to have some direct communication where multiple exposures are happening at the same time. And um, yeah, just the, the magic of the uh, camera phones is coming from it all being developed together and I, th- I think that's the kind of integration we're going to need to see before this becomes mainstream. So uh, uh, yeah, thanks again Adam. Hey Tyler, it's Patrick. I just hey, Patrick. Have a super quick question for you. As someone who has used many different types of cameras there's always an ongoing debate between full frame, APS-C, micro four thirds. What is your favorite sensor? I want to say it's probably full frame. But if you were looking to buy something, do you think there really is that big of a difference now between the three main sensors? Or should people actually be spending the money for and, and dealing with the size of full-frame cameras? Anyways, hope you're well, and greetings from all your friends in Toronto. Cheers. Great question. I have new thoughts on this, because I've been shooting with the Super 35 for the first time in a long time. I haven't had a cropped sensor camera that I used regularly until the C200, uh, since since I got the 5D Mark I, basically, once I got a 5D, I never looked back, and so that might give you the <laughs> answer to uh, which one I think is the you know the best or whatever. Uh, I definitely think full frame has the by far the most advantages in terms of the you know noise per pixel. Uh, there is I, just so often there is a lot better uh, noise ratios coming out of the full frame cameras. And of course, the uh, depth of field is you know, probably the biggest difference. It's the reason that if you are currently using a APS-C size sensor or smaller, that you it's probably what's attracting you to full frame. And you know what? Uh, I think it's a good reason to. Uh, it's I find it much easier, or it's much less often that I need more di- uh, more depth of field than less. Probably the only time where I do occasionally wish for a smaller sensor is shooting food from above, so that I want everything to be equally in focus, like from the person's hand down to the table, and I want all of that flat plane to be completely sharp, that can be a real challenge on a full-frame sensor. But there aren't a lot of other times where I'm really wishing for more depth of field than I have access to. And I think a little bit of proof of how the APS-C kind of is... Lesser, uh, the smaller sensor is uh, looking at the recent announcement of the Area Alexa LF, and uh, so, or no, sorry, Area Alexa Mini LF, which is you know, there's been the Alexa Mini for a while. That was the one that I reviewed on YouTube or or showed comparing it to the C200, and that has a traditional Super 35 sensor in it you've seen a million movies and tv shows and commercials all shot on the alexa mini or a very similar super 35 alexa sensor and they look great there's there's nothing wrong with them at all they look amazing but then uh they take their most popular camera the mini and they put a full frame sensor on it this is like the fastest selling super expensive camera in history i mean you know the camera costs like a hundred thousand dollars i think they instantly sold out everything in advance for a long time and i everybody i follow on twitter that uh, owns an alexa ordered one immediately like this is for all the people that are used to working super 35 and sort of have excuses or that's that's the wrong word that's making it sound bad are able to justify like you know I think it's kind of better to shoot Super 35 like I prefer it. I don't think that's going to hold up uh, now that there are so many great larger sensor options. Even seeing the the sixty five the I, I don't remember Alexa sixty five is that what they call it the large, the medium format size sensor from Alexa being picked up whenever it's possible like every everybody wants to shoot with it because it looks amazing. And I don't think there's going to be a, a move backwards. So when you're at the very high end and you can make any choice that you want and you are, or they are reliably choosing the larger sensor, I think that's a, a good good evidence of why a full frame sensor is just a little bit more useful. That said, I'm talking, that's talking about a very, very high end where budgets are absolutely no concern. Let's talk about the end that like we live at the real world where you know you have a certain amount to spend on everything that you've got and you want to make it count like you don't want to if you blow all your money on a body that you couldn't really afford and now you've only the only glass you can get is a you know 51.8 um a nifty 50 you're in trouble <laughs> I don't think you should do that um so I would uh you know i would definitely recommend looking at your options and uh, there's plenty of really great lenses for the uh, epsc size i got the 18 to 35 when i picked up the c200 and i've been loving it so it's the compromises are not so serious that people will notice honestly like you can build a career on non full frame sensors it is totally not a a deal breaker um i think i'm just emphasizing that like the best is probably full frame but you definitely don't need it for a lot of, a lot of use cases. Um, so don't be afraid of smaller sensors. Um, I'm not into Micro Four Thirds. I've never bought one of those cameras. I can't see any reason I would. But um, yeah, I, uh, hopefully that answers at least part of your question. Hey, Tyler. This is Jackson Hayes. Uh, my question for you is, what kind of app are you planning on building for iOS? Huh. Of course, Jackson here is referring back to the Matt Workman episode where he kind of he kind of convinced me that I should build an app um i I love this idea. I think it's something I should do I've wanted to do, and I'm not I can't imagine how I would time wise right now but I just you know in especially for business reasons I've worked at web and tech development companies I've designed apps for other people I've designed websites I know how they should work. I don't know how to build one myself. I don't write in any of the code languages that are important. I mean, I just kind of do bad CSS and HTML and terrible PHP and ActionScript, (laughs) which, I I mean, I could translate that to JavaScript if I had to. But anyway, I do want to start watching some Swift tutorials. I want to start moving towards this as a possible option of something to do. I have things in mind that I think could be done better uh, you know, especially in terms of image editing, like that comes to mind first. I know there are so many great apps out there, but, uh, you know, I do feel like there are things that color could color could always be done better. It's so hard to get amazing color, and I always feel like my hands are tied even using the best apps. And, um, you know, a lot of them have found success through film emulation, but I think there can be other ways to think about photo color. Anyway, I, this is not actually in the works, so I'm not going to spend any more time on it, but it's fun to imagine. And uh, I definitely will watch some tutorials just for kicks. Hey Tyler, what's up? This is David Potts from Austin, Texas. I have a question for you about uh, not being able to keep up with all the comments and requests for content that you, a creator might get. I do guitar lessons on YouTube and uh, it's been going great the last couple of years, but I'm just getting way too many comments on YouTube than I could ever look at. And it honestly, like uh, I avoid looking at them just because there's an emotional stress of even if people ask nicely, I feel bad not getting back to them, and therefore I just sort of put my head in the sand. Is that bad? Curious your thoughts, if you can relate. My One of my uh, answers has been just to focus on my Patreon supporters, because they're paying me a few bucks a month, so I sort of prioritize them, but I still feel like it's kind of a losing battle. But I'm curious what you think. Thanks a lot. Love your stuff. Bye-bye. I'm going to generalize this a bit, because... Not all of us are YouTubers and not all of us get a million comments or emails or anything a day, but I do think we can all relate to the feeling of being just behind and knowing that there are people out there waiting for a response that is not coming as fast as you know that it should or know that they deserve. Like you want to get back to them and you haven't yet. And I'll start by just saying that I don't think I'm great at this. Uh, I, th- I think I ha- do I have a half decent job um, in comments on YouTube. Um, because those come in waves. I post, like I'll, I'll post the video, all the comments kind of come at once and I'll try to respond to anything that, um, th- this is my general advice. Actually, this can be applied to anything. I'll try to respond to things first that I know I could quickly add quite a bit of value to that person so that if I just shoot back, uh, one or two sentences, I can answer their question and give them some clarity and it hasn't taken a big time commitment for me. I'll try to just do that as soon as I can when it comes in. And that goes for just direct communications and emails and stuff like that too. The challenge comes when you need to put some work into this, when there is like a, a bit of mental exercise involved. And you know that if you just take one second to answer this, it won't really solve the problem because you haven't explained yourself properly. And the only way to to properly respond is to put some time into it, to, to think about the problem and to explain all aspects to it uh, when you respond. That's, that's when I see myself falling behind. I've become very comfortable with leaving some of those when it is sort of, um, th- there isn't a good, it's an unearned time. Uh, f- so the person hasn't, they haven't really done anything that, would uh, you know define a relationship like we don't we don't know each other, but they are asking me to put a certain amount of time that is more than a few minutes into responding to an email and there is unlikely to be any reciprocation going forward um because and you know that, that might sound kind of selfish, which, you know in some ways in some ways it kind of is but the the thing to keep in mind is that every minute i spend responding to somebody else i'm not creating content that other people can see so even answering these questions here like you guys sent in your questions i super appreciate that and now i can answer them in a way that has some value for whoever else is listening but if i just got if you guys wrote all these on instagram and i sent the responses in direct messages you're the only one getting that answer so those are definitely less of a priority to me. It's also a reason that I prioritize Twitter comments because they're in public. So there can be a conversation. I mean, I think a huge thing that's been lost on the internet in general is the decline of forums. So a lot of our problem-solving conversations will happen either in Slack or in DMs or even on Twitter isn't super searchable. Whereas forums were have always been a way of like, Finding somebody that has the same problem as you and then a 100 other people answer their question and solve the problem that you've got. And now your problem is solved. When those conversations aren't searchable, we all lose a little bit. So, uh, yeah, anyway, that's just, just saying I like to try to answer things in public as much as I can. Uh and then the the other kind of response that's required of you something that's going to take some time and attention but is important. Uh you know, you have a good reason to give this person some of your time and attention, you will either have something reciprocal happening in the relationship or you already owe them something or you are just really engaged in like this is this is very interesting to you and like prompts a problem to solve that you would like to be better at anyway. That yeah, those are the hardest. I'm not going to try to give advice on it because uh, I, I struggle with it too. But, uh, you know, be I think the main thing to keep in mind is that you can rank things a little bit in order of uh, how important is this to me? You know, don't, don't forget about yourself. And then how important is this really to the person getting the answer? Like, are they just shooting out random questions to whoever they see on the internet? Or is this going to make a big impact in their life? And, um, you know, is this going to be part of a bigger relationship going down the road? God, I'm terrible at giving advice. Hello, my name is Pariksit and I'm from India. I've been doing YouTube for a while now and I thought I'd ask you a few questions that I had. How do I grow my audience and my channel? And how should I be promoting my work? And how can I make sure that I keep making better quality content? Also, I really love your content. Keep up the awesome work. That is very nice of you to say. And, um, you know, that's a big enough question to start a podcast about it. There is, there is a podcast that I can recommend um, that I think does a better job than I will be able to do here answering those questions. He goes into a lot of detail about practical tips that you can use as a, as a video creator. And that show is called Video Creators by Tim Schmoyer. So you can go to videocreators.tv. I'll include a link in the show notes. But to not leave you empty-handed here, uh, I, I, you know, I think something I see people screw up the most is not, not being aware enough of what makes them watch other videos that they do. So here's a specific example. There's a lot of advice out there that says always remind your audience to like, subscribe, and ding that bell, and double like, and double thumbs down. And I screwed that up so bad that you can probably tell that I'm not used to saying it. I don't I don't ask people to like or subscribe in any of my videos. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this. It's just not a thing. I do. I don't. I never include it, even though it's supposed to be there. Everybody tells you, like, make sure to remind them. My feeling is people know how to use YouTube. And if they are the type of user that subscribes to people they like, they will do it based on the quality of the content. So what I noticed is that some of my favorite creators... I don't enjoy the time they spend asking me to like or subscribe. Like it's wasting it's wasting my time, you know? I already know how that functionality of the site works and whether I'm going to do it or not isn't based on that call to action at all. I know when I want to like or subscribe it it's driven internally by me. So I choose not to spend time on that. And I think a lot of people a lot of creators will instead of noticing that that's not something that their favorite creators are doing, so maybe you don't need to include it. They'll see a list of tips written by nobody, like some some rando, uh, saying, like, here's the top five things you need to do on YouTube. Always ask for subscribers and tell them to ring the bell. And is that actually important? Um, does that really build a stronger connection to your audience? judge for yourself based on how you engage with content like what are things you watch that make you feel closer to the person that you're you're watching and yeah, i don't know like be observant try to be aware of those things don't just read tips i I think it's just like find try to learn the right lessons from people that you watch i just i told you i'm bad at advice uh hope that helps hey dala what's up man just want to ask that how did you start your career did you short weddings or something it would really help to know your story. Thanks. Well, I don't want to talk about me too much. Uh, I, 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 I It was a little muffled in the middle, but I think you're asking if I started by shooting weddings. Um, the, I, so on episode zero of this, I did give the rundown of my background and just how I got here. But in, I, the very specifics of shooting photos, I don't know if I talked about as much. I I mean, things were very different when I was starting Because I was starting right when the transition to digital happened. I mean, everything was still being shot on film. I started shooting on film. And you couldn't just, you know, buy a medium-priced camera and then offer professional services. You had to learn a lot more before you could do anything professionally. Uh, then I was fortunate enough to start working at iStock Photo, uh, like in the in the office, um, not you know, contributing but uh, doing being one of the first designers on the site. And in the office, we had a Canon One D Mark II that would have been, and I had access to it. I could just kind of shoot with it whenever I wanted. So all of a sudden, I had a like nine thousand dollar camera uh, out of nowhere, and I could sh- sh- take great photos with it, which was crazy and like a huge. Uh, you know, a real a gift to me. Like, I didn't, I'd known it, but just being able to get it sometimes and learn how to use a real camera, that was incredible and, uh, and really helped me move, have a career. I was going to say build my career, but have one at all. So I, I very much appreciate that opportunity. Obviously, not everybody's going to have that, but also the thing is, like, the gear didn't matter. Uh, I look back at the photos I was taking with that camera and they're not good. They're they're shit photos. <laughs> uh, you know, I didn't start taking decent photos until. Well, I guess I still haven't, but what, uh, I don't know. How how do I turn this into advice? I mean, one challenge is that when you watch other people give this advice, when you hear other people's stories, everybody's is very different. Everybody came from a totally different place. Uh, turning it from a hobby into a career usually involves a series of lucky breaks as well as a ton of hard work and moments where you think you should give up and sticking to it. Um, the most useful thing i can say about it uh, is probably that uh, you you should decide early on if you want to do this for work or for fun and treat it accordingly because um if you are doing this for yourself like to feel like an artist and to uh express yourself creatively and to to just scratch that itch you know that um that need to be To tell your story and show yourself to the world, it's a really different thing than working for clients. You know, taking their vision and turning it into reality, waking up early for them and showing up to do their job the way they want it to be and not being satisfied until they're satisfied. Because that's what photography as a service is and that's what most of the industry is I didn't understand when I was young. I didn't know all the ways that you could work as a photographer. Like I thought it was printing your photos and selling them or something. It was very vague. Uh, You know, I I thought it was like, yeah, like an an art museum is going to pick up what I do. So weddings are are actually a great example of this, that people kind of diss them. I don't know, people that uh, want to be, serious photographers seem to look down on weddings. And I just think that's insane and, and total bullshit. Uh, we still shoot weddings occasionally. Usually, usually it's for friends or somebody we know. We only really shoot like one a year, but I, I like it. Um, not cause I like, not cause I like shooting weddings, but because it's hard and there's a lot of moving parts and it really kind of, um, forces you to, Build some photography muscles, and I think that a lot of people that dis weddings that don't want to do them, it's because it's hard. It's because they don't want to do something that's that challenging, and that you know they don't feel like the photos are a creative expression of themselves. Whereas, like to me, you know, I don't want to do them full time because it's they're kind of exhausting. And, you know, it it can burn you out. I know successful wedding photographers that can definitely feel very burnt out because it can become repetitive, but uh, they pay relatively very well. Uh, You know, it's much easier to make it as a wedding photographer than as a commercial photographer or fashion photographer or artist photographer. And, um, you know, it'll make you pretty good if you do it for a while. Like, it's, it's a really great way to learn a ton of skills. So... I like that industry. Uh, It's not the primary one we work in. But if you are thinking about doing it, I think you should, even if you uh, are just doing it for practice. So yeah, weddings, they're fun. And now let's talk about something I'm completely unqualified to talk about. I guess it's the theme of the show, Game of Thrones. The whole series just ended. uh, Very fresh as of this recording. But since this is an evergreen show, you know, I mean, maybe you haven't started it yet. Go uh, sit back watch a hundred hours of TV and then uh, come back and listen to what I have to say about it. Cause I'm not going to worry about spoilers at all. I'm also going to not go too deep in depth. This will just be a few minutes of talking about my thoughts overall, especially of the last season, because spoiler, a lot of people were very disappointed. The whole internet seems to be up in arms as of right now. I I don't know if that's going to last, if uh, this show will be looked back on in the way that I hear lost talk about. I never watched Lost, so I can't judge for myself if that final season was actually bad or not, but um okay, here's what I think of the end of Game of Thrones. I thought that the final season was pretty decent. Not perfect. There are many flaws structurally, character development-wise. There there are holes, and problems, and disappointments. But I gotta say, the show has always had those. (laughs) Uh, And this, this might be part of why I'm not too disappointed, is that I've had some amount of just expectations managed, because... First of all, the show has always told us that you can be frustrated and disappointed at any moment. And I think it only sinks in more now that it's final. So when characters used to die, you still had other characters to root for. When a character you used to like did something terrible, you could still hope for their redemption eventually in the future. But now all of the doors are closing, and whatever characters do in the last few episodes— seal their fate as characters i mean this is who they are this is the end of the story and if you hoped for it to turn around in any other direction it won't so what that really means is all the Daenerys fans out there um you know are uh, are mad and i gotta say you never should have picked anybody to be a fan of in this show because almost everyone has always been terrible the only characters that um seem to get out of this is Catelyn and Eddard Stark in the beginning. They seem to be the most sort of perfect from the beginning characters, the least flawed. And of course they didn't make it, unfortunately, but everybody else, I mean, they've all let us down so many times. And even in their uh, positive arcs, like characters that really turned around, like say Jamie Lannister, he had so many ups and downs on the way there. This was not a clear path towards uh, him going from bad to good—it was never that simple. And yeah, I, I just never expected any of these characters to come out clean or to come out perfect. I mean, it was very much forecast that there were everyone was going to have problems. I mean, Daenerys was clearly a little power-hungry. Uh, whether or not that would translate into her madness was unsure, uncertain earlier. Um but I I think what led to a lot of the frustration and what is very valid as a complaint is there just wasn't enough time to deliver on everything that they set up. Again, part of the reason I kind of feel okay with that is I saw that I totally saw that coming. Like this was such an intricate complicated story. I did not think that they could Pull it all off that they could close all of the uh storylines by the end of it because that's not typically what we see. I mean, other really deep, complicated stories like this are often left with some amount of frustration, especially on television. So, I would have been shocked if this all came together in a way that we were really like we felt full resolution, but yet, what they they really did screw up though was there was just they could have had. I see. I'm okay, I'm not saying what they could have or should have done. I don't know how how money works in uh, HBO land, but having the final season be you know twelve episodes would have really helped things out because what the characters actually did, um, like their their final turns and their final like where they ended up in the last moments on screen, made that didn't bother me, and uh, I, I felt like they were set up to do the things that they did. Jon Snow. Uh, had a hard time committing to any decision before somebody told him what he should do and then would always do the right thing. That was kind of – that was his jam. That's what he always did. Uh, Daenerys was always, you know, conflicted between how she wanted to be perceived, what her um, ambitions were, and, uh, you know, she was kind of the – well, actually many of these people, like, they were leaders in wartime but, like, wouldn't have done great in peacetime. I can't imagine what Daenerys would have done in a world that she completely already ruled. Like, she wasn't comfortable sitting still. She would want to keep, like, pushing the envelope, and that's what we saw her do at the end. If we look at uh, Tyrion, you know, he was built up for so long. He just kept being smarter and wiser and cleverer and funnier. And to have him decline towards the end, like, have a bit of a fall— that's a valid storytelling thing. Like, there's no problem with it. Like, he he always was smart enough to get out of any situation. All of a sudden, he found that he, you know, maybe had gotten himself into more than he bargained for. All of these places that the characters ended up totally made sense to me and connected to their past. Same with Jamie. I mean, a lot of people wanted Jamie to come out better. I mean, to be with Brienne, for example, or to uh, just have really fundamentally changed his character. I think he did in the most important ways. But there was never a, a moment where it was like, oh, maybe he doesn't love his sister anymore. Like, that was, that was always a thing. And let's also remind ourselves, like, a lot of people that think that the characters in the show should do the right thing or, like, always move towards goodness, this has always been a horrible show with horrible people in it. Like, starting—we have become very desensitized to how bad the first season—how bad— the actions were of characters in the first season. And it was shocking at the time. I mean, the level of of comfort that it gave people talking about incest. This wasn't something you like talked about at all, especially not for entertainment. Like it wasn't a casual thing until Game of Thrones got big. It really normalized some pretty intense, awful things. And then to expect characters towards the end to like follow traditional, uh, you know, hero arcs. I don't. Know. I I wasn't expecting that to happen, so I wasn't too surprised or disappointed when it didn't happen. The worst moments, though. Okay, here, here's when it didn't work. When uh, Daenerys turned, the the moment where she f- snapped and went crazy and destroyed King's Landing, they they did not give her a good reason to. Uh, I've heard people on the internet saying like, "Oh, well, th- that should have been the moment that uh, the other dragon, whose name I don't know, uh, when when he was killed in the episode before." You know, if he was killed. At he or she, I don't know, when they were killed in that moment. If it was that moment they died, and then she's like, "That's it, I'm going to destroy everything." It would have given her an excuse, like it's something to 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 trigger her to to lose it and to kill everybody. But instead, there was just this stare into the distance, and she just killed everybody anyway. And like, they didn't leave enough room for her to to really go crazy in a way that that fully worked. It was not nearly as bad to me as the uh Anakin Skywalker transition, which really completely came out of nowhere with no foreshadowing uh in Game of Thrones you know it was it was set up it just it just turned too quickly, and you know what I'll be surprised if we actually see George R. R. Martin resolve these things all that much better, like he'll probably do um something that'll feel a little more satisfying because he was able to see the backlash. So he's probably taking notes and being like, okay, well, everybody really hated this moment, so I'm going to change it a little bit. But, uh, you know, he uh, he set up a lot of storylines, and there's a lot of things to tie up to make this feel satisfying. And he could definitely run the risk of it just, like, dragging on too much, like, not only never <laughs> getting around to finishing the books, but still feeling like a slog. Like, there is so much happening and so many promises that he's got to work so hard to deliver on all of them to, to close all those loose ends. So, you know, it, it may just be um, too big of a promise. That really might be the issue. I've heard people describe that's why The End of Lost was disappointing, is that there's sort of all these mysteries set up that didn't have a great explanation. And, um, you know, I heard I'm talking about Lost, the show I've never seen a lot, but that, uh, you know, the, the part of the problem there was it was also like being written kind of as it was being shot and they didn't have an overall arc to it. And I have appreciated that even if all the details weren't worked out and the pacing had some problems, the Game of Thrones knew. Where it was going. Like, I, I do think that George had the final beats figured out. I think he knew, uh, not you know, not early on, like, I've, I've heard his writing process was to kind of let these characters, like, speak to him and develop as they go. But that there was some overall, like, this is where they're going to go. And this is really who they end up being but you know to pretend that this wasn't a show that we liked because it shocked us and it surprised us and now we're shocked and surprised at the end and this time we're frustrated uh i don't know i i i just think a lot of people's criticism is is taking the show a little too seriously or expecting characters to be to actually be different from who they were like to expect bigger changes than We have seen people make throughout the rest of the series. Anyway, it was great. Uh, If you haven't heard of Game of Thrones, check it out on HBO. I am not going to read the books because I've already spent too much of my life invested in this. But uh, it was a fun ride. I don't watch a lot of TV shows, so uh, it was yeah, it was it was great to spend all these years with these very interesting, dynamic characters, very long list of characters. And I still gotta say, I'm so surprised that this was a successful show because. Like I, I mean, I remember when I was first reading the book, because uh, I started the book about a year before the show was announced. And my first reaction was like, I don't know if I can do this because there are too many characters. This is so complicated. There's a, like all these names and places to learn. And um, it's not super digestible. And it's fantasy on TV, which has never been really successful before with really weird concepts. Like I said before, like really graphic, like extremely graphic violence and, uh, you know, very taboo topics that films are made about. It's, it was very strange to me that this was a hit. Uh, and you know, maybe it, 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 I think a lot of people ended up taking it more seriously than I did. Maybe that's part of my secret to enjoying it is that I always just enjoyed it. Uh, and I never felt, too closely attached to it. It was just entertainment. So I don't know what the next show I'm going to watch is going to be. Uh, There's usually only about like two or three I have going at a time and I don't watch them that often. So uh yeah, we'll see. Anyway, that's the end of this episode. Uh, thanks for tuning in, guys, even though it was just me. I do have some cool guests booked at some time in the future. I'm uh, hoping to get back to a regular schedule. Don't know for sure if that's happening this week or next week, but it'll happen soon. And I'll definitely be talking more about Mac news as it happens. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next time.